Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Served on the rocks. This week, we talked to Dr. David Schwartzberg. Dr. Schwartzberg is a double board certified colorectal surgeon with expertise in inflammatory bowel disease, pelvic floor conditions, reoperative colorectal surgery, as well as robotic laparoscopic minimally invasive procedures. We talked to him about why he chose to become a surgeon and his passion for helping people as a career. We talked to him about his passion for inflammatory bowel disease and inflammatory bowel disease surgeries and helping people with J-pouch conditions. We talked to him about complications that can happen with surgery and how they can be fixed or improved with additional surgery. We talked to him about upper GI Crohn's and also about J-pouch failure and what you can do about that. We had such a fantastic conversation with Dr. Schwartzberg. He's awesome. Enjoy. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bowel Moments. This is Robin. Hey, guys. This is Alicia, and we are absolutely delighted to be joined by our guest tonight. Welcome, Dr. David Schwartzberg, to the show. Thank you for having me. Our very first very unprofessional question for you is, what are you drinking? Yeah, so I knew that was going to be asked, so I <laughs> thought about it. I don't drink often, but when I do, you know, I'll drink a whiskey. And so this is a Macallan that I was given by my father-in-law for some holiday. And he said, oh, I got this at work. It's like a really good one. And he gave it to me. And then he then Googled like how much this bottle, it's like a $500 bottle. And I could, he's one of the sweetest human beings I've ever met. And you could tell for like a split second. He was like, can I have that back? <laughs> and, and so in his honor, in his, I mean, only like open, you can't you know, you have to look at it. It's like in Spinal Tap with that. He's like, don't look at the guitar. And he's like, don't even point at it. Don't, I'm not going to play it. And he goes, okay, we're done. So I feel like in honor of, of him, I figured aged 20 year McCallum. Wow. What are, what are you all drinking? So even though it's the evening time, I still have a work call after this very late at night. So, so just, I- just scotch okay i'm actually drinking fancy fufu coffee i was really excited to discover that topo chico makes a seltzer now so i'm drinking their strawberry guava one today so cheers thank you again for joining us on the show Cheers. cheers next question for you dr schwartzberg what is your ibd connection what brought you into our community i always wanted to be a surgeon but i had a great experience at sloan kettering and i really wanted to be like a recurrent cancer surgeon and kind of take on the most complicated cases one of my early mentors uh, was Dr. Philip Patey, who's still there. And he's he's amazing. And he's amazing with the patients. And he's an amazing teacher. And he did these cases that you know were people's last shot, where a lot of other people would have given up. And he says, let's, let's do it. And these cases would take you know, 15, 16 hours. And I thought, you know, this is what I want to do. I, I want to be, you know, it's, it's, I guess you have to have, you have to be a little crazy or have a little bit of an ego, but it's not that for me. It's just, I really believed I could do it. And I thought, well, well, you know, settling for anything short of that would be kind of, it's not fair to whoever may need my help. So I have to try to be the best. I have to try to study the hardest. I have to try to, you know, my, my surgical skills and all this stuff. And, and so I thought that's what I could do. But then I realized there's a lot of people who do a lot of great cancer surgery. But when Feza Remzi came to NYU when I was a chief resident and showed me, you know, how few surgeons have specialized in inflammatory bowel disease surgery, which is really difficult and how much you can improve someone's life 
life if they have the proper surgery done properly at the proper time. And what's nice about it is, and I come from a long line of like medical doctors, like on the medicine side, you really have to know a lot about, it's not just all surgery, surgery, surgery. You know, you really have to know what's going on in the medical side of things. So you have to be more of a medical surgeon because you have to know what's out there. And it really makes you interact with the dietitians, with the stoma therapists, with the gastroenterologists, with the interventional gastroenterologists. You know, you have to kind of know where everyone is because it is a team approach to inflammatory bowel disease. And I said, this is this is exactly what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. And so there's not even a personal, you know, connection in terms of anyone in my family um, who has it, but I, it's just, I see the resilience in, in some of the patients. And I just think, you know what, they need someone to truly care. And actually when it's time to go to the OR, she knows what they're doing. And it's humbling because there's so many things that are changing all the time. But I mean, it's truly besides my family is all I care about. That is entirely truth. And um, it's wonderful to get to take care of people and, and to take care of people who've been told maybe no offense to anyone, but like local surgeons are kind of, you know, oh, there's nothing else we can do. And it's nice to be able to say, no, you know, let's, let's, let's go for it. And as long as we're safe, obviously, but let's go for it. Let's give you another shot. And um, it's a nice thing to, to be able to, to give that to someone, give them back their life and, you know, let them go back to what they enjoy doing. And it's a nice feeling. It really is. As a patient who's had multiple surgeries, it's nice to have someone say, let's take a shot because I've been told that. Let's give it a shot. Do you want to give it a shot? We'll give it a shot. And so having another option out there is, it's nice to know that there's the possibility of that. So thank you for continuing to work and learn and study and be the best. We appreciate it. Well, we're certainly trying, you know, but yeah, I think it's important. I think there's a lot of people, uh, even with things like diverticulitis, you know, things that can be complicated, but are, but is not such a mystery. Someone may have like an emergency colostomy and then, you know, they're young and, and they could, you know, they could be like 60, that's young. And so, but then, then the local person says, ah, oh, you got to live with it. It's, it's too risky to reverse. And you're like, wait a second, it's not true. You know, certainly if someone has real risk factors, like they had a heart transplant, the heart's not doing well, there, certainly there's risks and benefits, but if it's safe, there's no reason why, you know, someone's skill or, or opinion should impact someone else's wishes. And so, you know, even again, even little things that patients have been told, no, Oh, there's nothing we can do. You got to live with it. You know, I, I kind of joking, I'm, I'm, I'm tongue in cheek saying it, but I, on some level, I mean it. You know, until I've said it can't be done, then, then there's no reason that it can't be done. And I, not just me, but, you know, there's a group of people, other surgeons that I really respect, one of them, you know, being my mentor. But, you know, I, I figure we get paid to do, like Mariano Rivera, who's on the Yankees, you know, he didn't get paid to pitch the first few innings. You know, he got paid to pitch the ninth inning. He got paid to pitch at the end. You know, he, he took you home. And I feel like that's what, you know, my paychecks for is to take those, those not, you know, their calculated risks, but to take those risks on behalf of the patient. This is one of the reasons why I wanted us to bring in professional guests when we talked about doing the show is because I absolutely love, and I know Robin agrees with me, mm -hmm. meeting people like you who say, this is my passion and I know I can make a difference. So thank you for that. Number one. And this is like, cause it's just <clears throat> so just delightful to hear from people like you who say, I want to do really good for this community. And I know that I can. One of the reasons that we definitely wanted to talk to you is because you do tend to take on these very complicated cases and, and some of these cases that are a little, you know, from people that have heard no, and including some J pouch issues and stuff like that. I mean, one of the things that you wrote that you really want to talk about is how do you work with patients that have had surgery that have maybe then had complications that now need to figure out how they can improve their life or sort of quote unquote fix some of the things that may have happened in 
past surgeries. Talk us through a little bit about that. Like somebody comes in the door, they're having some complications. What's the first thing you do? I mean, even myself, you know, if I have a patient who's maybe not doing as well as I think they should be doing in, in my hands, because these things, you know, surgery is very humbling and the best of intentions, the best procedure interoperatively, everything go perfect. And, and yet things still happen. So, you know, we all have our, our complications. And I think to myself, and this is what I, you know, was, was taught, you know, what, what I have come up with it myself on some level, maybe, but what I was taught by my mentor, which, you know, was taught by his father, who was also a surgeon, you know, I'm talking about Dr. Ramsey is, you know, look at your own footsteps. And, you know, is there something you could have done better? Is there something that went differently is, you know, and sometimes the answer is no, but a lot of times you can think, oh, I wonder if it was this. And, and I think part of putting your ego aside is even if there is a complication, being able to say to the patient, listen, this is what I think happened and I'm here for you and I know what to do. I'm going to get you through this, you know, recovery phase, but I'm, I'm here with you. And I think sometimes, you know, as surgeons, at least what I've seen, and I think, you know, I, you can be guilty. Of it and I try to actively fight that is saying, oh no, everything's fine, everything's fine. And I don't think that way. And so when someone comes to me who's having some issues, I think first you have to listen to exactly what they're telling you and the timing of what's going on, because you're starting to think and it has nothing to do with the other surgeon. I would think the same way on a case that I have done. Okay, wh what little detail, what you know, what was it? Did someone have a very risky operation in the setting of malnutrition and, and steroid use and you know, even biologic and maybe didn't have a stoma when they maybe should have had a stoma. And maybe so I'm thinking, okay, maybe they didn't have a stoma. Maybe there was a little leak because there's all these risk factors, malnutrition, steroids. Maybe there's a leak. Okay. So let's, it's like Sherlock Holmes. You know, you have to, that little, that little clue and you say, okay, let's investigate. Let's see if there is a leak. And then you do whatever test you need to do. And you try to prove to yourself that's not the case. And then fine, it's not. And you go, okay, well, let's see. This person's got having these symptoms kind of sounds like it could be some kind of, maybe it's adhesions causing a like a partial bowel obstruction. And you go, well, let me look at the imaging. Well, there's no bowel obstruction, but I see there's this type of, you know, when they when they did that small bowel connection, which we call an anastomosis, you know, they did it in kind of a funny manner. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's not functional. So maybe it's not narrowed, but it's causing symptoms of something that's narrowed because it's not functional. You go, okay, let me figure that out. If, if you run out of things to disprove, you go, okay, I think that's what it is. And then you tell the patient, listen, here's all the things that I thought it was or could be. And here's why I now don't think it's any of those things. And here's why I do think it's this thing. And I think if I can fix that one thing, I think you're going to be better. And one of the things is that kind of, I think when you start to think about surgery and, and reoperative surgery or corrective surgery, which is sometimes what we call it, is patients who have J pouches and we're just not doing as well as they should. And when you finally get to the point where you're in the operating room and you see something that maybe some of the rectum is left where it shouldn't have been left, or there's this honest to God twist in the pouch. And we're seeing more of that with minimally invasive surgery, but there's something there. It's in front of you and you can fix it. And so when you start to then look back at, at you know what brought the patient there and you're going, wow, for two or three years, this person said, I'm not feeling right. You know, I can't X, Y, and Z. And then they finally come to you and you're like, oh, let me do you know this test and that test. And within a day or two, you're like, oh, I see what's wrong. And it breaks your heart that someone for years was 
screaming, I'm in pain, I'm, something's not right. And everyone's going, I don't know, it looks fine to me. So when you feel like you can, you know, figure that stuff out, if that's how you think, you know, it's again, it's kind of like Sherlock Holmes. I love those movies. Actually, Sherlock Holmes is written by an author, but the person who wrote, he was actually a doctor. And that was kind of what he wanted to portray was like these little details, especially back in the day when doctors would, you know, sometimes lick or smell or taste urine to see if someone had diabetes. And, you know, you really kind of had to, to really, you know, get in there. And so if, if you say, you know, I can figure these things out, you know, at least I'm trying, I've seen what can happen. I see what we can fix. You kind of then want to say to people like, here, you know, come to me. And so it looks like you're saying it because, you know, you want to be like well-known for the sake of being well-known, but you're really like a lighthouse. You just want to like hold a light up and say, you know, come, you know, or even, you know, France's gift to us, the Statue of <laughs> Liberty, you know, it's, we were talking about that before. No, but it's true that, you know, she has this light and it's a beacon of hope and that's what it is. So you want to say, listen, I can do these things. If you're not feeling right, if no one has been listening to you, please come see me. Uh, let's at least give it a shot. That's what it is. It is definitely a beacon of hope because so, so, so many of us, I mean, honestly, you start to feel like you're going crazy. You get told that there's nothing wrong with you for so long. And then yeah. you're like, okay, am I crazy? Like, am I making this up? So having someone who's at least willing to listen and then explore, at least willing to take a look to say, okay, let's if there's yeah. something, it makes all the difference. Honestly, it just acknowledges that there could be something. It changes everything. Yeah, there's this quote, I think it's by Albert Einstein, but it says, I'd rather be an optimist and a fool than a pessimist and correct. You know, there are, you know, not the IBD population, but just in, as humans are, there are some people who, you know, are drug seeking and there are some patients who aren't, you know, that's the way it is. And I'd rather be fooled by them by taking, you know, even the very, I think it's, I think that's very few patients. Cause I think in most patients who like, maybe I've had a consult I'm like, oh, there's someone in the ER, they're always here. You know, they always say they have abdominal pain. You kind of go down everyone rolls their eyes. And I say, you know, BS, I believe everything this person says and they operate from that assumption, everything they say is correct. They're not lying to you. And again, I'd rather be duped by someone than to, God forbid, not take someone seriously who actually is in pain and needs our help. So that's just, once you make that decision, just that's your decision. That's your thought process. That's a really important thing to say. And I think that's an important thing to remind people that the humanity side of that, because, you know, this does affect a lot of people with inflammatory bowel disease. You know, unfortunately, abdominal pain is the thing that usually gets you the card that's labeled drug seeker or frequent flyer in the ER. And those are the people that go longer without pain control. Yeah. And women go even longer than men without pain control. And just because someone didn't know where to look, you know, right. so then they say, ah, oh, they're making it up. And it's like, that's not fair. I just, I just yeah. don't believe that. No, know? it's not only that. You can't even get pain meds. Mm -hmm. My primary care can't prescribe pain meds. My GI can't prescribe pain meds. My rheumatologist can't prescribe pain meds. Nobody can prescribe pain meds. How is it possible a rheumatologist can't either? Like that one seems real bizarre to me. Wow. Like, That's a good point. Like where I live, I have yeah. to go see the pain doctor to get pain meds. And so not that I need them right now, I don't. But I'm just saying I want to get in to see one now yeah. because I, it's been months. I haven't been able to get in to see one to set up as a patient in case I do need it because I have Crohn's. So I probably will have pain again mm -hmm. in the future. Speaking of Robin's Crohn's though, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to pull us back a little bit here because Robin, she's one of those folks that like she had initially was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Diagnosed with ulcerative colitis 2000, had surgery right away for my colon to be removed, had an mm -hmm. ileal rectal 
anastomosis. Had that for 20 years. In 2018, my diagnosis changed to Crohn's and Crohn's showed up in my stomach. In 2020, I had a J pouch built. In 2021, had my ostomy take down. So I've just had the J pouch since December of 2020, functioning J pouch takedown since July of 2021. But I've had IBD since 2001, 2000. But I feel like we've heard from more than a handful at this point of people who have started out with a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis, had J pouch, and now it looks like it's Crohn's Crohn's. disease. We do see that. And there's like this gray area between patients who have ulcerative colitis have a J pouch and then something goes wrong with it, such as maybe there's a leak. You know, there's usually something that happens when you see someone you go, okay, you're not doing well. You know what? Tell me about the surgery. They're like, oh, I was supposed to have my ileostomy reversed, taken down, you know, at, you know, two, three months later, but it was almost a year later because I kept having to go back for procedures. And and you're like, wait a second, tell me about that. And again, they think there was maybe a leak and you're like, you start to raise these, you know, these flags and these little red flags and, and and now you're seeing someone and they go, well, so, you know, I have Crohn's disease because, you know, I have a fistula. You're like, you know, you might, but it's almost more likely that this, that this happened very recently, that there was a problem with the J-Pouch. Again, no, best of intentions, but you can have a leak and then this leak never fully heals. And then it causes symptoms that look like Crohn's. So there's a lot of people who have symptoms of Crohn's of the pouch. They don't actually have Crohn's of the pouch. They have kind of an anatomic, mechanical, post-operative issue that looks looks like it's Crohn's disease. And so there's a lot of this. And, but what happens when someone you know has some issue like that? Everyone says, oh, it's Crohn's. So what do you do for Crohn's? You start someone on a biologic, right? And so now the person really needed maybe you know antibiotics and maybe taken for an exam under anesthesia and you know figure things out. But the diagnosis, at least because of a few symptoms, starts to change to Crohn's. And then it goes down a different pathway entirely. So we do see that. But even ulcerative colitis, there's some new studies saying there can be inflammation of the stomach with ulcerative colitis where typically people, they said, well, if you have inflammation elsewhere other than the colon, it's, it's got to be Crohn's. It can't be ulcerative colitis. But I think even more than that, whether it's Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, what part of the body it's affecting is, is more important. So you know, so the people who do worse are people who we think it's ulcerative colitis and it turns out it's Crohn's for some reason, where patients do best if it's ulcerative colitis and they get a J pouch. And the people who do second best are people who we know it's Crohn's disease, but they can get a J pouch. I think it's because everyone's just much more aware of looking for these symptoms early on. And then the people who do third best out of three is the people who have indeterminate colitis or what we think is ulcerative colitis. And then it turns out it's Crohn's disease. So it's one thing if you're going into a J-POD surgery, knowing it's Crohn's disease. It's another thing if it's ulcerative colitis and there's that third category, we're not sure. But you know, a lot of post-operative issues manifest looking like Crohn's disease because that's what everyone says, right? They're like, oh, it's Crohn's. You know, like if you don't know what it is, you just blame Crohn's and this, you know, everyone, oh, there's a strict Sure, it's probably Crohn's. Oh, there's a fistula. Oh, it's probably Crohn's. Oh, there's chronic pouchitis. It's probably Crohn's. It could be sure, but it also might not be the underlying reason that someone's has, let's say, chronic pouchitis. It could be that there's a small leak that never fully healed and just kind of keeps. You could put on antibiotics, the leak gets a little better. You get off the antibiotics, that little abscess gets a little worse, it inflames the pouch, get pouchitis again. Now you're labeled as, oh, you have chronic, you know, refractory pouchitis. And that could happen. That does happen, but on a lot of people, there's something else going on that needs to be worked up. And if all those things are negative, then fine. In my opinion, fine. 
Okay, you do have you know chronic pouchitis, sure, but until a mechanical, technical, post-operative kind of complication, even though that you know no one's fault, until that's worked up, I feel like you shouldn't just immediately label someone as, as having Crohn's disease. In many scenarios, is what what I see kind of doing this reoperative surgery. What are some of the most common pouch issues that you find in some of these folks that come in that are like either seeking a second opinion or just like you know their doc their doctor has said I don't know what to do with you. There's a few, and I, I'm working on an article that I'm, I'm hopefully going to submit to be presented at a, a great conference, which is every year in Disney. Um, and they have like regionals and it's advances in IBD, AIBD. And it's it's kind of looking at even abdominal reasons that people have patients with pouches are quote unquote labeled as pouch failure. But a lot of times in my mentor, you know, would say when people have an ileostomy to protect the pouch, then you take that ileostomy down, that ileostomy has to be sewn together end to end, you know, putting it back together where people most likely most of the time do because it's a little quicker, it's a little easier, faster, is do a stapled anastomosis, which is when these two ends of the bowel are like laid side to side and a common channel is created. But it has a lot of functional problems and it can be stenotic. And so patients have this chronic abdominal pain, they're nauseous, and it's not even their pouch. It's actually happening before their pouch, it's happening in their abdomen. So we see a lot of strictures at the ileostomy site, the old ileostomy site. And we see a lot of strictures at the anal anastomosis site between the J pouch and the anus. And a lot of that is because of tension. And so especially if you see someone who had a one stage or a two stage J pouch, meaning their colon and rectum and the J pouch was made all at once, that a lot of times if the colon was removed first, and then you came back later to take out the rectum and do the J pouch, it allows the bowel to elongate. And it, there's tension. So tension, what we see a lot is tension on the anastomosis. Uh, for a variety of reasons. But if there's tension on the anastomosis, the result is a stricture. And so a lot of patients come in with a very narrow, you know, anal canal essentially, and they have to go through serial pouch exams and this and that. And then sometimes these pouches are twisted or they're half twisted and they're not emptying correctly. Really the ideal scenario is, you know, small intestine going straight into the pouch, going straight to the anus. And that's, everything's got to be in a straight line. And when things start to be a little off axis, it really messes with the kind of the physics of tubes and pressure and things that are moving and things can kind of create that ball valve effect where someone goes to evacuate and they go to like, you know, they push, but what it does is kind of cause something to close and only a little bit, you know, like a car accident, like in front of the car accident, like everything can move, but behind the car accident, everything's blocked. And so patients have these kind of very unusual, sometimes obstructive symptoms. And it's sometimes explained by, you know, a very obvious thing. The hard part is how to fix it because, you know, really to, to redo the pouch is a big, big deal. So we try to do whatever we can on a smaller local, you know, procedural surgery kind of level to, to avoid that. But ultimately, sometimes people do need that. I guess I'm curious if there's a reason you mentioned them doing like the stapling together, the two ends and creating a new sort of common channel. Is there a reason other than just not wanting to keep people under anesthesia for a certain amount of time? Like why would somebody no, take that I mean, shortcut if they don't need to? Honestly, it's a little bit that it's a lost art in many ways. Okay. And it's a little bit of, of time. And and there are some studies showing that the patients can leave the hospital a day earlier. So they're after an reversal that's stapled, their intestines wake up a little faster. So you're like, oh, that's good. Get them out of the hospital. You know? But if your metric is getting people out of the hospital and, and that's what you're going for, then that's what you'll get. You know, but if your metric is thinking two and three steps ahead and making sure 
I don't care, you know, if someone stays an extra day, I want it to be done properly. That's a different metric. And sometimes, again, sometimes it's skill, sometimes it's patience, sometimes it's time or simply training that some people don't have. But, you know, you beware of, you know, people who care too much about money and, and, and power because you know, there's a, a Rudyard Kipling quote that says, like, don't be overly concerned with money, power, or, or wealth. One day you'll meet someone who doesn't care for any of these things and you'll realize how truly poor you are. And so I don't care about money per se. You know, I, I you know, you need to have some in the world, but that's not, and if, you know, if I'm with, at a hospital system that only cares for that, then that's probably not a good match. So I'd rather let someone stay in the hospital an extra day, knowing that I've done the right procedure down to the very detail, even if it takes a little more time, because I know in the future, it, you know, that's going to be better for the patient. And so, but there's a lot of, I don't know, you know, you can only, you know, control what, what's in your universe. And I, every time we give a lecture to surgical residents or fellows or anyone else, we always try to, we, you know, my mentor and I always try to stress the point that a patient needs to have a hand-sewn closure. You know, and the same goes with, with Crohn's disease. If you're resecting small intestine, this end-to-end connection is like how God created it, right? But on the side to side, it takes a certain amount of bowel in each direction. And so if someone has a recurrence of Crohn's disease, not only do you have to take out the recurrence, but you also have to take out that anastomosis. So you just lost an extra 15 centimeters of bowel for each recurrence for no reason. And if you, maybe someone has a few recurrences, they have it in a few spots. Next thing you know, you add this up and it's a hundred centimeters of bowel. And that might be the difference between, you know, short bowel syndrome and not. And so as my mentor would say, thinking two and three steps ahead, that's the art of it. The art is thinking two and three steps ahead. So we try to always do whatever's best long-term, not exactly what's going to make, you know, the person just get up and out of the hospital and, and make the hospital money. You know, <laughs> That's my opinion on it. Open that bed up faster. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a real question in a second, but I am curious if there was anybody that you knew that was advised not to be a surgeon because their sewing sucked so bad. No, but there's okay. certainly some people, you know, I mean, I think about it like art, you know, like mm-hmm. you could take all the art lessons you want. There will always be Picasso, right? I mean, this guy just, he just knew what to do. I mean, and so there, there are certainly varying degrees of kind of artistry and surgery, but the training is so long and so hard. And there's so much emphasis on, you know, surgical skills. And we have like skills labs where you practice this stuff that there is certainly a layer where everyone is good. You know, everyone is good. Some people might have that, that touch, but, but no, I think if you can get through, you know, by the time you graduate, I think everyone's, everyone knows what they're doing. Thank God. They don't have you take up like embroidery on the side just to like improve a little bit. <laughs> no, I try to do that. I mean, I, I sew, I'm the sewer at home. Like my kids have their little stuffed animals they've had since, you know, they were like infants and the, the ears and their heads fall off. And, and I'm constantly, you know, vicral suture is kind of like a braided suture. It's kind of similar to like a sewing. So like, and I'll take a suture home from the hospital and my son has eggy and eggy's basically entire head and nose and ears is all like a vicral suture that's been tied. And so, <laughs> so yeah, but I do think like that, you know, any practice you can have. And sometimes I play music instruments, whatever I'm playing, just just because I'm on some level, it's, it's about muscle memory and, and, and kind of being connected to your hands and anything that can improve that. And any practice you can with your hands, I think is important because this is a craft. Surgery is a skill. It's a craft. You're not a professor. You know, you're not just giving these long sermons. I mean, it's important what you, we, at the end of the day, what you do in the operating room matters. And so I think anything, you know, I watch surgery videos of operations at nighttime and, but like, of course, right. I mean, that's what, if you're obsessed with something, that's because of course that's what you do. You know, there are people who are obsessed with baseball and they watch old reruns of Yankee games 
hours, you know, even if there's a rain delay, that's what they do, of course. And they spend Saturday watching college football. Like if that's truly what you care about, just so happens that truly what I care about is, is surgery. And so, you know, it's, it's a good obsession to have essentially. Here's your real question, especially considering some of the folks that you're seeing have had perhaps poor response to the surgery that they have gotten. And so they've probably been symptomatic for even longer. I'm curious how you work with them to get them as optimized as possible for success in their surgery. Like what are some things that you do to really try to make it so that as people are either going through like another surgery, like to get a replacement J pouch, or what are some things you do ahead of time so that you know that when they are laying on the table waiting for you, that they're in the best possible place they are? Like how, how do you optimize things for them? Yeah. I think it's a, it's a great question. In short, you want every modifiable risk factor is what we say, like, you know, at these surgery meetings, every modifiable risk factor to, to be modified. And so someone's smoking, is, I mean, that's an easy one, right? But you got to stop smoking. That's what you say. If, if the truth is sometimes in J-pod surgery, if someone is obese and, you know, it's, it's, common. We say, you know, we need to, at this particular weight, and it actually does affect kind of the reach of the intestines. If someone can't eat, we try to meet with their dietitian, nutritionist, see what they can tolerate, how much protein, how much good food can we get in them that's not going to cause pain or a blockage or something to that effect. And ultimately, people may need either, you know, one of two things that, or both that we do try to avoid, but sometimes, you know, you can't like an ostrich, put your head in the sand and just pretend it's not happening. You need to make every risk factor in your favor. And so if someone needs like an ileostomy or even a jejunostomy to allow them to eat and gain weight because you're not ready to do that complex surgery yet because there's something bad going on lower in the abdomen, or if someone needs, or both, or someone needs TPN, which, you know, total parental nutrition, TPN is IV nutrition, and you need a special IV that gets put in. That IV is associated with blood clots where the IV is associated with infections. And knowing these risk factors, it can cause issues with the liver. I mean, there's issues with glucose and blood sugar control. But at the end of the day, if someone has a problem, you can fix it. And as you said, you have to get them in the best shape possible. I always think about like, like the week before the Olympics, I mean, these athletes are the best shape in the world. That's what you want to be in going into these big surgeries. So sometimes patients need a surgery, like just to have an ileostomy or jejunostomy, just to set them up for a future surgery. Or we do have to put them on TPM. And every, every other thing, if there's infection, antibiotics, if maybe you, they need an IR drain, which is a drain you know that gets put in under ultrasound or under CAT scan to drain that infection. So if there's infection, deal with it. If there's malnutrition, fix it. You know, if even if someone is, is very frail, you know, try to get them on an exercise program, try to get them like the Olympic athlete at the Olympics, they're in there, you know, they might not be Olympic, you know, ready, but to them, the best they can be, because that's going to give you ultimately give them the best shot at, you know, having a smooth surgery and a smooth recovery. So say somebody's like mid J pouch surgery, like you've created the pouch, you're sort of waiting for things to heal before you reconnect. How are you gauging that success at that point? And then like, what happens if somebody comes in and they're like, you think they might be ready, but then they show up and they're like, you're like, oh, what the heck? This is not, you're not ready yet. How are you gauging that? Well, I think in, in many of these scenarios, there's what you assume will happen. And then you, you're, so you're, you're all those normal things kind of happen naturally. The patient had a J pouch. They left the hospital in a few days. They're already used to having the ileostomy. Cause let's say they had one before when the, when the colon came out. So you see them in the office, they say, listen, I'm doing well. And you say, okay, well, I'm going to get a gastrograph and enema, a GGE, which is when we make sure all the connections are open and nothing's leaking. And it comes back normal. 
normal. And you're like, okay, let's reverse you at, you know, somewhere between eight and 12 weeks. And then there's the patients who, you know, had an issue afterwards and, and maybe had an ileus. So their bowel didn't wake up right away. And then you got a CAT scan and there was some fluid and maybe they needed a drain. Maybe they stayed in the hospital for an extra while. So right off the bat, as long as you're receptive and kind of looking at things, you'll see, okay, maybe this person isn't ready yet. Or, you know what, let me get a CAT scan. Okay. Maybe this, you know, this resolved, let me get that gastrograph and enema. Let me really make sure everything's okay. Maybe there is a little leak. And you say, hey, listen, there's a little leak. We did everything we could. 99% of the time, all we have to do is wait a little bit. And so it's, it stinks. It's, I mean, it stinks for the patient much more, but it also stinks. It breaks your heart as a surgeon to say, because this person is like, okay, I've been through so much. I thought I was going to have my pouch and, you know, the ileostomy was going to be reversed. That was supposed to be the easy part. And you're going, but you got to hold on to that ileostomy for a little longer because, you know, there's a little leak and just wait, just give me, give me six weeks and we'll redo the gastro, you know, the gastrographin test. And, oh, it's better, but it's a little smaller, but give us another six weeks. And, you know, sometimes it, it does turn into, you know, six months or even a year. And it may be, and some patients, and it's very rare, some patients never even have the ileostomy reversed. They have to go straight into a redo JPOC procedure. And it's rare, but the, again, the important thing is not to be like the ostrich and just pretend it's not happening. You know, you have to just see what's going on with the patient and, you know, deal with it and just be honest with them and, and tell them you're there for them. You'll get them through it. But unfortunately, we're going to go on a little bit of a detour, but it does happen. I think, again, it's just important to pay attention to all these little signs like Sherlock Holmes. You know. Um, okay, I am going to change directions here and I'm going to make this all about me now because I have Crohn's in my stomach. Yay. And I've been told many, many times, pretty much every doctor who I tell that to says, oh, that's, that's rare. rare. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so you know. But I know that you've done a little work on that, work around that, research into that, look little looky-loo into that. So you can you tell me about it? All I know is that it's rare. I don't because it's rare, there's not too much information out there about it. No, it's it's honestly that that is rare. No, I'll have it. Thank you. I'll be here all night. Tip your waiters. Okay. Um, Back to you, Alicia. um, You know, it's, you know, it's interesting. And again, when I was a fellow at Cleveland Clinic, we tried to kind of look at this where I think still probably going to try to write it up, but trying to just get a little, some more patients that are enrolled, but it really is rare. And a lot of the studies, so I wrote this like very long article on Crohn's of the esophagus, of the stomach, and then of the duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestine. And a lot of these studies, studies were old. A lot of these studies were when there was only prednisone to treat these things. And a lot of them kind of resulted in in these surgeries. And I think, you know, we kind of have to redo all of these studies now that we have such strong and, and plentiful biologic medications. And they're really, it's something that, you know, I have this whole theory about fecal stasis, which is something I think about a lot. And I think that's why it's just like, what? Um, no, I really do think about this a lot. And I think that's why some of these anastomoses don't work. But I think that's why J pouches are prone to getting pouchitis because things are just sitting there. But I think that's why in most patients with Crohn's disease, 70% have Crohn's disease of the term terminal ileum, which is right before the colon. And there's a valve there that a lot of times is closed to allow the body to kind of reabsorb whatever it needs to reabsorb, whether it's fluids, electrolytes, 
B12, folate, all these kind of things before it lets it go into the colon. But I think it's that, especially the, the things they're putting in the food these days, I think really must be part of it. That when it's sitting there, it's what makes the, the contact between these foreign materials, whether it's in the food, the pesticides in the food, whatever the case may be, is in contact with the intestine for longer, which is why it causes inflammation. So one of the other areas that there's one of these sphincters, one of these narrowings that can open and close is from the stomach going into the small intestine. And so kind of the other area it is sometimes is in the stomach. The, the thing is, I think the stomach is so, it's almost indestructible in many ways. So I think that's the reason that it's so rare. And we really need to know if someone truly does have, you know, Crohn's of the stomach, what is the best therapy to, to be treated with? And I, I think the, these days, right after prednisone, there was kind of a lull. And then it was Remicade, which was invented at NYU, Dr. Vilcek, who was a Holocaust survivor. And so he invented Remicade in the late 90s. So that's the oldest biologic. And so these days, if someone has upper GI Crohn's, it's, you know, it's Remicade. And very rarely do we have to operate. And that was kind of my article was, okay, well, if you do have to operate, what kind of operation are you going you gonna to do? And a lot of times simply bypassing that segment is all you can do because things are so inflamed. And in that part of the body, there's so many, that's where the pancreas connects, where the liver connects, you know, everything is in that one area. And so luckily it doesn't happen often, but sometimes if someone does need surgery, you know, what do you offer the patient? And even more kind of scary is Crohn's of the esophagus because that's such, now it's in the chest. So now, you know, it's even kind of harder to deal with that. But, um, you know, I wish we kind of knew more. And honestly, it was something that I, I worked a lot on and and when I left Cleveland Clinic, kind of, you know, passed the torch. But now that you bring it up, I really think I, I still have a lot of friends there. And I really think truly I'll, when we're done with this call, I'm going to reach out to them and see if we can kind of keep working on that. Because you're right. We need like an update on that. We need to know what the best treatment is for upper GI Crohn's. Well, thank you for doing that. That's, yeah. that's awesome. This is a super wild card question for you. So I have heard about this, but it has not come up on our show before. But when would somebody get a colon transplant? And why? So a lot of times it's the small bowel. So our good friend, Michael from 11 Health, you know, he had, and you know, may he rest in peace. He died a few years ago. Wonderful man. He had, he had Crohn's disease, a lot of repeated surgeries, and he had a small bowel transplant. And so that's one of those things. If, if someone has multiple resections and jejunoileitis, which is kind of, you know, in the middle of the small intestine seems to be very aggressive. And if someone has multiple resections, and that's why every little centimeter counts, and that's why these you know, the staple anastomosis is really it bothers me that if there's not enough, you know, if someone's going to essentially be on TPN, and that's their only, you know, they have short bowel, and what's defined is, you know, there's different definitions, but 100 centimeters with an ileocecal valve, so some part of the colon, or 120 centimeters without an ileocecal valve, so it's not a lot of bowel left, so there's not enough absorption, and if for some reason you can't be on TPN, then they do a small bowel transplant. But just like any other transplant, rejecting the body from rejecting the transplant involves a lot of medications. And sometimes those anti-rejection meds can cause you know, lymphoma and a lot of other issues. But if, long story short, if someone is truly suffering from short bowel syndrome, that's when you get the small bowel transplant you know, team involved. It's a major operation. And I, yeah. it's something sad, like the success rate's like just over 50%. And so, you know, you again, as a surgeon, right? It's everything we can do to think two and three steps ahead. So that doesn't happen because you never know, you know, if the difference is 20 centimeters, 
then I mean that could ease that's two small bowel and astenosis staple that you excise. That's that's the difference right there. And so again, oh. thinking two and three steps ahead and, and yeah, that's why people get a small bowel transplant. Okay. Thank you for that. I've been curious about that for a bit. Okay. I remember the other question I wanted to ask you, but I'm gonna need your help for this. So there's the two different so you're in J pouch. Your first stoma is just direct goes out, right? Second yeah, the stoma endoliostomy. is the one, yeah. So yeah. What's the one that looks like kind of a the, knuckle a, a loop. loop. Okay. So the one thing we have heard on this show from multiple J pouchers is that that loop ileostomy sucks. She's like, yeah. So as somebody who this is your bag, baby, like this is what you do. Like, how do you make that the best possible stoma when you know it's like the really terrible one? You're right. It's, it's never, no matter how good you make a loop ileostomy, it's never as good as the end ileostomy. However, I think, you know, in the way I was taught and I kind of do things the way my mentor does things who did it the way his mentor does things, which in many ways was the way his mentor did things, which is this guy, Rupert Turnbull, who literally invented the loop ileostomy, literally. And so how he does it and how he reversed it and all these things, we kind of, you know, it's it's like it's like an old trusted technique. You know, it's nothing fancy or it's not some fancy stapler. It's kind of just a pair of scissors and, you know, and, and some sutures. And, and so when you're making this loop ileostomy, thinking ahead about how you're going to reverse it, right? Always thinking two and three steps ahead. You almost want it to look like an endoleostomy. I think too many people people make the loop ileostomy almost look like what's called like a double barrel. So you can kind of see both lumens or both holes. But when we make, you know, you really want to make a good loop ileostomy, someone should really have to look at it and be like, is that a loop ileostomy? It looks like an end ileostomy. Because that means that that the effluent or, you know, the stool that's coming out of the proximal end or the top part typically is majority of what's there. And that other end is almost being diverted simply by, it's not 50-50. It's like, 95.5. So most of what's there is that proximal end. And so I think that is the biggest thing. And because that is the way you can get it to look the most like a circle or not like a figure of eight, because that is very difficult to cut the wafer. And then even when you're, you're using the, like, I love those little, I call them the little circles, but those little wafers, the donut looking things. Like even if you're like playing modeling clay and like trying to, it just doesn't work. So I think the key is, and we also use a stoma rod. A lot of people are against that, but they're against it because you don't need a stoma rod if you do the way that the Brook ileostomy is. Brian Brook invented this. If you do the Brook ileostomy the way he did not describe, you do it in a certain way, which messes up the way you will reverse it. But if you're doing that darned staple anastomosis, so the staple ileostomy closure, it doesn't matter to you because that part's going to be excised, which again is losing a little bit of bowel. But my point is you do it differently knowing you're not going to have to deal with you know, it's like you're leaving a party and like, you know, you just, whatever, it's a mess. You're not dealing with it. Right. And so you don't have to think so much about how you're going to reverse it because you, you take, basically you take an extra bite of back on the intestine and that like keeps it up. So the people who do that go, Oh, I don't know why you need a stoma rod. I don't even use one. Well, you know, we're comparing apples and oranges because the reason the people who really do IBD surgery use the stoma rod is to keep the stoma up because we don't have that extra bite. And the reason we don't have that extra bite is because because we don't want that extra bite there because we're going to unbrook it. We're going to unfold it and just connect the two ends and not resect it. But by flipping it up in a certain manner and using the rod, we're able to make it that 95% proximal end and only 5% distal end. So it's about as close as you can get to an 
endoleostomy, even though it will never be as good as an endoleostomy, there's certainly bad loop ileostomies. That sounds lovely compared to what I had. <laughs> I'm sure yours is perfect, but oh, those are all. I can assure you that it was, it was not. I can oh, no. assure you it was far from perfect. Actually, it was six months of not good. Yeah. It's all those little details, right? So the attention to detail, yeah. all these little things that um, make such a difference. You know, you have yeah. one opportunity to do it right. Okay. I'm going to ask you a really off the wall question now again. So you're welcome. Talk to us about all of the music that you do. You mentioned you play oh, yeah. five instruments or you did at some point. Yeah. When I was younger, I was pretty cool. You know, I, my father, <laughs> my father was a doctor, but he played the drums. And so I learned how to play the drums watching him play the drums. And, but my mother grew up playing the piano. So she got me some like very stern, like she was not that she has to be Russian, but she just was Russian. And she just made me do like the waltz on the piano. And I was like, this is so boring. I was like 10, you know? And so I stopped playing. It was a big argument, but I said, I'm not playing piano. And so I was playing the drums and I was pretty good at the drums. I taught myself, but I mean, I could play. And years later, a few of my friends played piano and they always played these cool songs. Like I remember one of my friends played the Cheers theme song. Dun, 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 dun. I was like, oh, that that's cool. Like I want to learn that. My other friend was playing like Billy Joel, who's from Long Island and I'm from Island, so that's like a big deal. And I was like, I want to learn that. And it turns out they have the same teacher. So then I years later said to my mother, I want to take piano lessons. And so I started taking piano lessons, but then I really got into like guitar. And you know, when you play guitar, the banjo is very similar to the guitar, the bass is very similar to the guitar. So once you start playing the guitar, you're kind of learning these other things. And, you know, then you're learning the piano at the same time. And you know, there's chords in the piano, and you're like, oh, it's the same as the guitar. And then you start to take the piano music and you're playing on the guitar and vice versa. And then you got a bunch of friends who play music, and next thing you know, you know. That's what you do after school. Everyone, everyone plays an instrument, and um, so I got really into it. And I would write these songs, and we kind of, uh, you know, we we would we would in like high school, we would travel around on the weekends, and we'd, we'd play in like these bars that you know we that's were called we the band. Just in case the you were band. that's called the band. It's true. We had, it was pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. And, but we couldn't even get into these clubs. They would, they would look at us, be like, the bouncer would be like, what, are you even pretending to get into this club? And we're like, oh, no, 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 we're the band. And so I wanted to be a musician. You know, I, I think music really was there for me when I was a kid. I thought that was, you know, I think everyone goes through those those phases. You know, your mind is expanding and you're, and you're trying to figure out who you are. And music was wonderful. And I thought, you know, I could be a musician and I could help other people with my music the way other music helped me when I was a kid and I really thought I was going to be a musician but my grandmother as we spoke about my grandmother one famous day at lunch convinced me I went my mother I remember we had a big fight I came home so I actually played lacrosse in college so I was like a lacrosse player and played music and you know I studied like only as much as you had to and I was like oh, I'll be like a no offense to anyone who's listening who's like a um, advertising major but like I was like oh, I'll do advertising that's cool I was like because then I'll like write jingles and I went to lunch it was like a few days after after like my freshman year ended and I went to lunch as like a lacrosse playing musician who was an advertising major at like like 12 o'clock and like by one o'clock when we were done with lunch I came home I was like out of the band I was now a biology major and I was pre-med my mother was like what the hell happened at lunch and I was like 
I was like, I don't know. So what I, you know, and really what my grandmother said to me though, is, you know, it's great. If you're a musician, you get to help people. Great. But what if you don't make it? You know, what if you don't help anyone? And I kind of, that was the way she said it. It was all I needed to hear. Cause I thought, you know, what a life not well spent. So, and she said, you know, every day as a doctor, you get to help someone. And I just, my entire life changed and I have not regretted it at all. I mean, I'm sure I'd be much cooler as a musician, but you know, now I teach my kids how to play and, and I do, but I do think you know, how can you practice to be a surgeon when you're 16? Like, what are you going to be extra smart? Like, that's not exactly, that's not all that goes into it. You know, there is a technical skill behind it, right? And so, you know, what's, how can you practice to be a surgeon, you know, when you're just a teenager? Well, how about, you know, figuring out how to play the drums and the piano and the guitar? And, and how about doing something tactile with your hands, whether you're an artist? That, that dexterity. I think, yeah. yeah, it actually is yeah. important, you know? Yeah. And so I look back, I don't think I would have done it differently. I think, yeah, I'm actually a lefty, right? But in like, you're always living in a righty world. So like a lot of things you do are ambidextrous. I actually operate righty most of the time, but sometimes you operate lefty, and especially with robotic and laparoscopic surgery. You know, I think, you know, it, music's a lovely thing. And I, I play a lot of music in the OR, always very calm music, but I think it's important. I think music is, is important. And there's something about music that everyone brings people together. I think that's a wonderful thing. And there's a lot of dexterity, as you said, that goes into it. But yeah, I play a bunch of instruments. And now my oldest son is a pretty good drummer. My middle son is a pretty good piano player. And my youngest, who's only four, is like a rock star. He has his little guitar. He strums and he sings on the microphone. It's so funny. But they have a little Partridge Family band. And um, it's pretty good. They're getting there. I'm going to take the show on the road. I just know. They better make us some money. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, but like I have to give my wife credit. In our basement, we have a piano, an upright piano, a full like, drum set, amps, electric guitars, a bass. And then in our like main floor room, called like the piano room, there's a grand piano. There's other guitar, acoustic guitars. From our time living in the city, I had an electric drum set. So then on my, on, on our, like the floor that everyone sleeps on, whatever the second floor in my older son's room, he's got a full electric drum set and I have like a guitar in there just in case we want to jam. So like, I got to give her credit. She's like this, this wonderful, neat, normal person who's like stuck with me and my three sons, like just constantly making noise. And I give her a lot of credit for putting up with us, to be honest. She doesn't play an instrument? No, but she used to be a dancer and she's got, she's got very good rhythm and so sometimes she'll hop on like the tambourine or like that little shaker egg and she's good i'm telling you she's good it's been so much fun thank you so so much for agreeing to be on the show honestly obviously so many ivd patients have surgery the percentage of ivd patients i mean you know this every yeah. year that you have ivd the, the likelihood that you're going to have to have surgery yeah. goes up uh, you know exponentially so you coming on the show and sharing your passion and expertise with us is just well i, I do think a lot of surgeons a lot of surgeons are pretty scary at least in the word even you know, no one wants to yeah. see a surgeon. And the problem is if you see the wrong surgeon, then everyone's super scared to ever yeah. see another surgeon because nope. that one surgeon, you know, was so yeah. stern and said, you're going to need, you know, surgery and left the room. You're like, oh yeah. my God. I think the surgeons who specialize in IBD are usually very, very human and care about, you know, their families and their patients mm -hmm. all the same. And a lot of them, like even, you know, our cell phone numbers and personal emails and like call us if there's a problem. That's why I think it's important to kind of get out there and like, hey, don't be so afraid. Not that you have to see me, but 
don't be so afraid of seeing a surgeon. It doesn't mean you're going to have surgery. That's right. So not everyone is like you who is an IBD surgeon. And from personal experience, if you see someone who is not awesome, then just see someone else because that's what I had to do. I had to change surgeons mid J pouch surgery. And that's fine. You might have to do that sometimes. That is just the fact of life. It's not specific to IBD. It's just how life works and how doctors work. Everybody's different. So it's not the end of the world. If you do have to see a different doctor, a different surgeon, in the middle of your surgery journey. Yeah, it's your life, right? Don't feel bad. It's important. It's your life. And so you have to do it. I tell people, get a second opinion. No, I think be wary of the surgeon who says, oh, you don't need a second opinion. Thank you for saying that. Be wary of the surgeon. And I will add doctor that tells you not to get a second opinion. I feel like that is is true. I don't want to digress because we will go down this rabbit hole because that is a pet peeve of mine. It is such a pet peeve of mine. So I am going to ask our wrap-up question. It's actually two questions for professionals. What is the one thing that you want our IBD patient community to know? And what is the one thing that you want other IBD medical professionals to know? Just so the patients know that we really are all day and all night long trying to you know, come up with a cure or try to come up with a way to do things better. We really are. And just kind of hang in there. You know, I think we're making a lot of, in the past few years, a lot of advances. And, you know, I used to be a pretty good golfer. When when no one needs surgery anymore, that'd be fine with me. That'd be absolutely wonderful. I would love to, working towards like putting yourself out of business is perfect because I hope that's the case. And so to the patients, you know, we hear you, we know kind of what you're going through and we're, we really are just trying to help to the healthcare professionals. I mean, I just think people need to, you know, have the mentality of, of fighting back like the system. I think the system wants you to see as many patients as possible, as quickly as possible, and just say, screw it, you know, and we have to, you have to work with them, but, you know, you have to be true to yourself and not every patient can just be a 15 minute visit with two minutes to document. And then you go to the next patient. That's just not how it goes. And I think, you know, when, when the hospitals understand that the insurance companies will have to adapt. I mean, I, every patient you order an MRI on, you're, you know, you're going to be on the phone with the insurance company saying, Oh, why do you need the MRI? Well, you know, because why not try an x-ray? Like an x-ray? That's not even, what are you even talking about? I mean, you could have said CAT scan and I would have said that's a good question, but here's the reasons we can't do a CAT scan, but an x-ray, you know, and they like, have you tried just thinking of not doing it? You're like, no, that's also not an option. (laughs) You know, but that's, but so, but we have to like stick together because if, you know, the, the, the patients and the doctors really stick together and the other, you know, the PAs, the MPs, the respiratory therapists, the dietitians, the stoma therapists, everyone else, if we all stick together, then, you know, we're stronger than these insurance companies and, and anyone else who's trying to kind of take the humanity out of, you know, it really bothers me when everyone's like, oh yeah, computers will do everything and AI and robots. I'm like, that's, you're missing the point. If you think, you know, if you think this is about efficiency and, you know, cookie cutter out. This is, that's not how it goes. This is about, it's, it's quite an honor and a privilege to take care of someone. You're not, you know, you're not just taking care of them. You're giving their family your, your word also. And so this is about as human as it gets to take care of someone. I think every person you operate on just as a surgeon, it's like a child, you know, there's a piece of you with that person because for the rest of your life, you want to be responsible for getting them back to their, their life. And so you want to do everything possible to make sure they're going to be as good as they can be. And so that's, I think, to the other healthcare people, we just have to stick together and bring the, like, the humanity back in, in healthcare. Amen. And also, <laughs> thank you for thank you for making Robin and I both cry laugh off yep. camera and off like mute. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like, have you considered not? <laughs> no, that's, that's, like all, that's like honestly all true. 
the x-ray that's that didn't happen to me that happened to a friend of mine and it was like wait what she's like like an x-ray that like clearly they don't know right they're just whatever you know they're reading some script that says like and it's like there's only one rule just refuse everything and and it's a lot though rubbing your hand over have you tried magically wishing yeah yeah do you feel a bump have you checked for bumps like yes we checked for bumps it didn't have you checked for them twice? Yeah, we checked for them. Jesus. Oh, we checked. Oh my God. No. That's Dr. true. Dr. Schwartzberg, seriously, you are a joy and a treasure. And I <laughs> am so happy we've gotten a chance to talk to you and meet you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank well, you thank for you being for such me. an amazing surgeon to all of our folks and, and yes. for deciding to specialize in inflammatory bowel disease and sharing yes, yourself with us. So yes. thank you everyone else for listening as well. And cheers. Cheers, everybody. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. David Schwartzberg. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Thank you.